hormone harmony is not just a supplement for women going through perimenopause, menopause, or postmenopause. It's become a phenomenon. Women cannot stop talking about it on social media. A bottle of hormone harmony is sold every 24 seconds. Happy Mammoth, the company that created Hormone Harmony, is dedicated to making women's lives easier. That means using only science-backed ingredients that have been proven to work for women. They make no compromise when it comes to quality, and it shows. Hormone Harmony contains science-backed herbal extracts called adaptogens. Now, here's the beauty about adaptogens. They help the body adapt to any stressors, like chaotic hormonal changes that happen naturally throughout a woman's life. So, Hormone Harmony isn't just for menopause. Any women with symptoms of hormonal imbalances can take it, but it's perfect for those with those horrible menopause symptoms that put a woman's life on hold. Hot flashes and night sweats, racing thoughts and low moods, poor sleep and feeling tired all the time, occasional bloating and gas, no desire to be in bed next to someone, if you know what I mean. Yeah, Hormone Harmony can help with all of these things. And the biggest benefit feeling like myself again. And that's what women mention over and over in the reviews. There are over 17,000 reviews for Hormone Harmony. For a limited time, you can get 15% off your entire first order at happymammoth.com. Just use our code, which is the acronym of the podcast, T-S-N-O-T-Y-A-W at checkout. That's the podcast acronym at checkout at happymammoth.com calling all memoirists. I'm so excited to let you know that I've put together an incredible all about memoir lineup for Saturday the 11th of May from 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. Eastern Time in which six amazing speakers guide you through everything you need to know to write a memoir that will sell. You'll get opportunities to ask questions of best-selling memoirists while also standing a chance to have your query letter live critiqued during the webinar. To see the awesome lineup and to register, go to biancamaray.com. There's an early bird promotion for the first 50 delegates who sign up. Come and join us and get your memoir groove on. Hi there and welcome to our show, The Shit No One Tells You About Writing. I'm Bianca Murray, and I'm joined by Carly Waters and Cece Lira from PS Literary Agency. Hi, everyone. Welcome to another new and improved Books with Books segment where Carly and Cece will be critiquing two query letters each that were addressed to them on the website. For those of you who still want to submit to the segment, go to biancamaray.com, look at the podcast page, and there you get to decide if you'd like to submit to Carly, to Cece, or to a visiting agent who specializes in your genre. And those will be coming up soon as well. So listen out for them. So let's mosey on in. Would you like to begin with the first query letter? Here we go. Dear Ms. Waters, I am excited to send this query to you as I have been a devoted fan of the podcast you co-host. I have listened with particular care to your books with hooks critiques in order to prepare my query materials, which I share with you here. Novel X is an upmarket slash women's fiction manuscript complete at 97,000 words. If the strong but struggling female protagonist in wry dialogue of Alyssa Coles when no one is watching met the heartfelt and humorous family relationships of Emma Straub's All Adults Here in March 2020, Novel X is the book that might result. 
Callie Watts, a 40-year-old forensic accountant, has been casually dating for the last seven years as she sorts through the complicated terms of her divorce and her brother's incarceration. Her parents died when she was a young adult, so her 57-year-old lesbian neighbor, Wendy, fills a role somewhere between auntie and dating guru. In late February 2020, Callie goes on yet another first date, this time with Dave, a 42-year-old bachelor who works in biotech. After dinner, they spend the night at his house. In the morning, Dave learns he was exposed to the novel coronavirus at a work conference and must quarantine. He and his company want Callie to quarantine there with him. She must try to preserve privacy about her personal life as she and Dave must negotiate remote work, possible illness, not to mention forced cohabitation, only to emerge into a city grappling with the worldwide spread of COVID-19. While I write in the early morning, the rest of the day, I'm an over-caffeinated professor of communication and always single mom to two young boys. Since starting this novel in April 2020, I've written and published personal essays in literary journals and WBURs. I've written and published personal essays in literary journals and WBURs Cognoscenti. I'm an active member of Grub Street in Boston, where I've taken classes, attended the Muse in the Marketplace Conference in 2021, and formed a writing group that meets weekly. When not writing, my boys and I swim, ski, walk in the woods, and read Beverly Cleary books together. I've included my first five pages below for your perusal. Thank you for consideration of my work. Take care. Author's name withheld. Awesome, Carly. Thank you. Right. So why don't you tell us what you thought of the query letter? So the first thing I noticed, and I noticed the second time when I was reading even more, is that I had to fill in a couple of missing words. So for example, in Alyssa Cole's book, it says on the page, when no is watching. And I read the book, so I know it's no one is watching. And then there's a couple other times I had to fill in some words. So I would just say, read this aloud because me reading it aloud also pulled out all of the uh, missing words. So that's my first recommendation. But I did love Alyssa Cole's when no one is watching. I thought that was a really, really great comp. So there's a couple of things here, big picture things I want to chat about. Number one, maybe we'll tackle this first, is the COVID book. So um, I don't know how everybody else feels, but I've been chatting with editors and a lot of people have been asking this question because we don't know. Are we ready for a COVID book? Do we want to have this infection yet or ever, right? Like, I think we're still feeling that out. You know, one thing I always think about is 9-11 is still kind of pretty much avoided in fiction. There's very few books that that talk about it. One book that comes to mind is The Nest. It has a small subplot about 9-11, but as a whole, we just kind of avoid it. You know, it's a, it was a tragic, tragic time for so many reasons, right? And I just don't think people are ready to revisit it. And, and we just had a huge anniversary of it, right? So I don't know if people are ready to go there with coronavirus type of novel and also quarantine, right? Like a lot of people are still in quarantine. Quarantine and people, myself, like my kids aren't um, vaccinated, right? So we're really still cautious about what we do and, you know, how we live our lives. So I still feel like we're really in it. And I know some people who live in adult only households who are double vaccinated or living their lives. And I say, like, good for you, like, go, go, go. Um, but those of us with kids and unvaccinated people or, um, you know, compromised people in our houses um, just have to be really careful still. So this feels a little bit too soon, I would say. Nothing wrong with it per se, but I personally feel it's too soon. And what I'm getting a sense of in terms of like the temperature of the industry, I'm also feeling like it's a bit soon. So that's kind of my big take. But I'm going to say that. And then tomorrow we're going to look in Publishers Marketplace and there's going to be a big coronavirus, like a market novel. So, you know, that's the funny thing about this business, right? Is like, it really only takes one book to kind of break through. So I say that, you know, with the caveat of that is just my opinion at this time. Okay. So now let's talk about the book itself. So I, there's a lot of really specific things in this query, like her job, her age, um, her neighbor's name, and all of these really specific things that I get a little bit bogged down with because I'm confused about what is the hook here like is 
quarantine the hook? Is coronavirus the hook? Is the romance the hook? Because there's a lot of specifics about her job, his job, their ages, all these things. And so I don't know why the brother and his incarceration matters yet, right? Like, I don't know why the divorce matters yet. There's all of these things. And one of the things I wasn't clear on was whether she has children. So if she's quarantining with this guy, like what happens to her kids? Like, I don't know. It's fine. She doesn't have kids, but then like, I, that, I don't know, that somehow frees her up to kind of do what she wants as an independent woman, which is kind of also a different hook. So I, I have a lot of questions about how much specificity we need here. And yeah, other than that, I think it was a very well-written query. I, I liked the author bio paragraph and uh, and I think that there's a lot of really good stuff going on here in terms of trying to make this as exciting as possible in terms of what a quarantine novel could be. Great. And, and could you give us a bit of an indication of what are in those first five pages? Absolutely. So chapter one is called The Morning After. So our two characters here, they went out on a date last night. And so our, our opening scene is them waking up in the morning after spending the night together um, and having a wonderful time. And our female protagonist is getting her clothes back on, trying to figure out where her, uh, her man of the hour went. And he is in the living room on a work call. And so she's a little bit like, mm, we had a really great night and it's like 8 a.m. So why are you on the phone right now? And so she's like waiting for him, trying to figure out if he's going to get off the phone, trying to figure out what's going on. And, you know, based on the query, we know that this is probably a very important work call because he works in biotech and, and coronavirus is making its way around the world. But she's feeling a bit like, mm, what's going on? She texts her her neighbor and relationship guru, Wendy, and, and they're kind of texting back and forth and deciding whether she should get the heck out of there before he gets off the the phone. In terms of the critique of these pages, I I really liked, you know, the interiority of the of the opening paragraph here. Right away on the first page, we figure out that Dave is on the phone. And what that tells me as the reader is that it's a very important call, right? Like if and we are to assume as the reader that it's an important call because they had this wonderful date and then all of a sudden he's on the phone. So I think that's really good, right? Immediately as CC would say, it creates a lot of tension in that opening scene because we we want to know what's more important than the this, this wonderful date. Then we get into a little bit back and forth about how the date went last night, which I think is a little odd because we know the date went really well. So we're a little bit like we're going back in time and revisiting things we already know. So I don't think we need to kind of rehash what happened, um, what happened on the date itself. And then we get into like a full page long text block. And this is a lot of texting to go back and forth. I love that you changed the font because Bianca would be so proud of you, but it's like a whole page of texting, right? And that would take like 10 minutes to like text back and forth with somebody. So, and that just felt like a little bit unrealistic and that she wouldn't like pop her head in and see what was going on with the phone call situation. So overall though, like it's very steamy, it's very romantic and, and has a lot of tension. So um, so I think it's quite strong. Wonderful. Thanks, Colleen. Cece, have you got anything to add before we go to your query letter? This seems like a super fun project. In reading the query letter, the thing that most stood out to me is that I wanted to know what the brother's incarceration had to do with everything. And I was just like, can you please tell me? Don't keep me curious. So I would advise this author to like give us a little bit more. Wonderful. Thank you. Okay, Cece, why don't you read us your query letter? All right, let's do this. Dear Cecilia, as an avid listener of the podcast, I am excited to submit my query and opening pages for your review. Based on your love of stories about dysfunctional families, immigrants, and female relationships, I'm confident you'll be interested in Title X, complete at 80,000 words. 
It is a work of women's fiction with romantic and subtle fantasy elements that will appeal to fans of the mouth-watering magical moments in Roselle Lim's Natalie Tan's Book of Luck and Fortune and the diasporic family secrets of Chanel Clayton's Next Year in Havana. As a successful pastry chef in San Francisco, Rosa would rather create new desserts than focus on the Croatian recipes that remind her of the mother she lost. But when she discovers a letter that suggests her mother lied about the death of her grandmother, Rosa can't ignore her heritage any longer. She jets off to her mother's home island off the coast of Croatia to find the family she never knew she had and the truth of what happened to break their ties. Instead of the magical reunion Rosa had imagined, her grandmother Carmela delivers a cold greeting, unwilling to reveal the past, let alone forgive it. Lost, Rosa turns to a charming loco chef for help. He reveals a shuttered cafe her mother and Carmela used to run, known for a dessert that grants the power to relive fond memories. If she can reopen the cafe and learn the family recipe, Rosa hopes her grandmother will finally accept her and unveil the secrets about the past. But the closer Rosa gets to the locals and Carmela, the darker her mother's story grows. She must decide if knowing the truth is worth repeating her mother's actions, breaking apart her newfound family for good. Like Rosa, I am a daughter of immigrants from the former Yugoslavia, and this story was inspired by my desire to connect with my heritage and grandmothers. I earned a BA in Slavic languages and literatures from the University of California, Berkeley, with a focus on the languages Bosnian, Croatian, Serbian. As a passionate traveler, I have called several places home, but I currently reside in Nova Scotia, Canada with my husband. Thank you for your time, consideration, and the helpful advice you provide on the podcast. I regularly meet with my writing group that Bianca grouped me in, and I am grateful for all their feedback and support. Sincerely, Author X. Wonderful, Cece. Thank you. Right. Why don't you tell us what you thought of that query letter? So right away, first paragraph, we have title, word count, genre, cops. This is a perfect first paragraph. I have nothing to say about the first paragraph other than great job. In terms of the plot paragraphs, so we have three plot paragraphs. I'm, I started reading the first of these three and I thought to myself, can you please be more specific? Like, I don't see the connection between longing for her mom and the emotion that she lied. Was it horror? Was it confusion? Was it shock? Because I read suggests her mother lied about the death of her grandmother as lied about the circumstances surrounding her death. I read that as her grandmother died while committing a crime or her grandmother died leading a secret life or her grandmother died in some way that had to be like covered up and lied about. But when I got to the next paragraph, I understood that actually her grandmother hadn't died at all. So for anyone who maybe might make the same mistake that I made, I would really clarify that, right? Like lied about her grandmother being dead. Her grandmother is not dead. I think that's super important because it just, I would not have been confused with the emotional questions and I would have just kept on reading. So that's something that I would urge the author to consider. I would also suggest that they read the last story of Nina Lee. There's something about the insight incident that feels similar and so perhaps that that could be a comp and also if you just read the uh, copy at the back of the book it's a really great way to notice how you can create curiosity and really use an inciting incident in a way that's super specific but not giving away any spoilers so I after finding out the grandmother is actually alive and that's what the lie was I was like okay so the emotion is definitely shock and confusion so now Rosa is trying to figure out why her mom kept her family a secret right So I was very curious about 
So that's great. And then when I got to the third plot paragraph where she mentions that her mom had secret recipes that made you relive fond memories, I was just completely hooked. Food and speculative elements, like that's just amazing. I so wanted to read more. I thought that was absolutely great. So great, great job with the hook. The hook is really, really cool here. And then in the third plot paragraph, the darker her mother's story grows. I would just be a little bit more specific about what's happening in the present. Is there a romance with this loco chef? Having read the pages, I know that there's another guy who appears who's also handsome in her age. So maybe there's like a love triangle. I don't know. Something that's also keeping the story moving forward other than the mystery of the past. So if there's anything else to add, I would also add it here. And then I loved the last paragraph because you're telling me that you're working with writers groups and all the talented writers I know have either critique partners or beta readers or editors who work with them or all of the above. So I think that's awesome. Hell yeah to that. Right. Cece, what did you think of those opening pages? Can you give us a quick overview before you critique them? Yes. So we have Rosa, the protagonist, arriving in the island of her mother's hometown in a ferry. And around her, people are speaking in Croatian. And through inner life, we understand that Rosa is 29 years old. She's a pastry chef. She just lost her job. And she just discovered that her maternal grandmother, whom she thought was dead, is actually still alive or potentially maybe. We also understand that her mom's gone. She lost her mom. So after she gets out of the ferry, she trips and falls. A man appears. His name is Luca. He's her age and he helps her and he knows who she is. He says, oh, you're Rosa. I'm supposed to meet someone called Rosa. And she was like, well, no, I'm supposed to meet someone called Annika. Annika is actually the owner of the guest house that she rented online. And he goes, I'm her son. So I'm here to help you. And then they leave together. That's essentially the plot. In terms of notes, I was wondering, so she's in the ferry, right? I'm wondering, does she understand Croatian? Because she keeps talking about how everyone's chatting away in Croatian around her. And that's literally her mother's tongue. Whether or not she knows Croatian would say a lot about her character. I also want to say that the first line is brilliant. My mother used to tell me the sea ran in my veins. I loved that. It's absolutely beautiful. As I kept on reading, I had very specific questions and I was very, very curious. Things like her calling her mom a liar. I had a character development question, which was she assumed that everyone was looking at her and thinking that she fit in, that she was just another European traveler. And there's three distinct moments in these pages, and we're only read five pages, where she either mentions that pe- that people assume she fits in or that she is surprised that they notice that she's a tourist. I'm wondering, where does this confidence of belonging comes from? Is this intentional? Tourists are really easy to spot anywhere. American tourists are like the number one is most easily spotted tourists in the world. I realize that her mom's Croatian, but to the best of my knowledge, she's never been there. And so where, where is this coming from? It's such an interesting character trait. Not a bad thing by any means, but I hope it's intentional and I hope it fits her character because that's really, really important important. This is very well written. This is polished. This is absolutely great. I did want more tension in the first pages. One thing I thought of, I, you know, everyone, listeners know I love brainstorming. What if she has like a Ziploc bag filled with her mom's baked goods in the freezer and she's like running out. All she has left are like, I don't know, 12 or something. And she's eating one of them, right? And whenever she eats one of them, she feels something. Since the whole hook of the story is going to be this food plus speculative elements, like magical food, etc. Essentially. What if she, you know, in her mind, she's eating these things thinking, I just love it because it makes me feel close to my mom. The confidence I feel or whatever comes from love. But later we'll tie in all these plot points and go, oh, actually it was because of the magic. I don't know. I absolutely wanted more tension. And I think that one of the ways to accomplish more tension is to have something that will make us later on realize it's actually a seed. So something to think about. 
Awesome, Susie. Thank you. Carly, did you have anything you wanted to add to that? I just wanted to say how unique this women's fiction with romantic and subtle fantasy elements is. I mean, whenever we can get you know, women's fiction with a plus or a hook, that kind of genre blends, I'm all for that. So I thought this was a really unique concept. Wonderful. Thank you. All right, Carly, let's move to your second query letter. Will you read that for us? Dear Carly, Cece, and Bianca, thank you so much for all you do to create opportunities for learning and growth within the writing community. I particularly enjoy the Shit No One Tells You About Writing podcast and also loved being involved in Carly and Claire's hashtag Get Reels publishing challenge on Instagram. I'm seeking representation for my adult romantic comedy title Redacted. Complete at 84K, this story follows Tess, a curvy, career-oriented engineer who finds herself unexpectedly expecting her best friend's baby. For fans of Christina Lauren's Josh and Hazel's Guide to Not Dating and the film What to Expect When You're Expecting, my novel chronicles an entire pregnancy with one chapter for nearly every week. Tess Piper only wants two things, to be a kick-ass engineer and to live happily ever after with her BFF, Ben Shields. Despite being friends with occasional benefits, Ben keeps Tess squarely in the friend zone. When their latest alliance yields two lines on a pea stick, Tess winds up on her back with handsome Peter Breyer between her knees. He's her ultrasound tech. Don't make this weird. Desperate to spur changes with Ben, Tess creates a fictional relationship with the hot almost doctor. Her hormones are raging. She's not thinking clearly, okay? But when she's forced to ask Peter on an actual date, the two discover a surprising connection. Peter's unwavering acceptance of Tess causes her to question whether her pretend emotions might almost be real. With her due date looming and her job suffering, Tess must decide between embracing the fairy tale ending that Ben is finally ready to offer or owning up to her mistakes and risking rejection by doing so for the man who never overlooked her. As a mother of two wild things, this body positive novel draws on my personal experiences for relatable laugh out loud pregnancy slash parenting insights. I'm a creative writing graduate of Valaprizio University. My debut novel, A Night for a Queen, was published in March 21 by Big Small Town Books, and I'm under contract for the sequel. When not writing or kid wrangling, you can probably find me in the kitchen doing just about anything other than cleaning it. Sample pages can be found below per your submission guidelines. Thank you for your time and consideration. Sincerely, Hannah B. Olson, she slash her. Content warning for full manuscript include references to child loss, cancer, and mental illness. Also contains non-graphic descriptions of pregnancy and childbirth. Awesome, Carly. Wow, that's an extremely voicey query letter. Did that work for you? It really did. I know it's a it's a risk to add in the italics and the ellipses and um and all of those rhetorical questions. I I really do think it works, and it's such a it is a risky take. One thing that I think was really missing from this query, a really big comp to me, is one to watch. A phenomenal phenomenal book. I loved it so much. It has a plus size heroine and a friend to lover plot. So to me, that was like a big opportunity missed for a really strong comp. So I would add that one in. I, I adored that book so much. My next big picture thing is. Is realistically, this would breach some sort of patient code in terms of confidentiality, in terms of Peter being seeing her for medical reasons. Even though I really adore this love story um, while she's pregnant, I, I really think like love story while pregnant with the non-biological partner is an excellent, excellent hook. <laughs> I really adore that. But I was a little bit confused. I'm like, oh, wouldn't he get into trouble at work or something like that? But I don't know. Maybe he passed her on to, a, to the next tech for the next ultrasound. I'm a little bit confused about this whole like how she can trust her emotions hook because it is a common like I don't know whether you can call it like cliche or judgment towards pregnant women that they can't control their emotions. So I felt like, I don't know, a little bit like 
I, I didn't want to reinforce any stereotypes about pregnant women and their emotions and like being out of control because that is not something I want to reinforce. But overall, I really love the body positivity. And again, that's why it reminded me of one to watch. So um, so I really got one to watch vibes from this, which is great. And obviously appreciate the content warnings at the bottom. You know, I don't really think that was spoilers or anything like that. I think it just set us up for what's to come. Wonderful. Okay, give us an overview of those opening pages. Right. So we start off and I realized that I picked two spicy queries this week. So we're, we're opening with another postcoital scene. Um, so we start with a chapter heading called Conception. And uh, and the opening line is, Ben and I have hooked up exactly five times since becoming best friends in the seventh grade. And so we start with laying out the five times they've hooked up in really short paragraphs, like one, spring break, eighth grade, they made out to the scene three, the scene four, five. And now we are in the moment where, again, postcoital, they're like in the bathroom the next morning, just like, should we be awkward? Should we not be awkward? She's more awkward than him. He's very like, everything's fine. I'm going to like hop in the shower and they don't really know how to react. And then we jump to 10 days later, great timestamp. And they are meeting up again with a group of friends because they're friends after the first time they've seen each other after hooking up. So, okay, my notes for this. So I thought that the opening felt really young because we start with like the first time they make out is eighth grade. The second time they make out is high school, right? And so we the whole page is them really young. So I almost think we need to start with the hookup scenes in reverse. So we start with like the adult scenes and then we reverse down to the to when they were the youngest so we can really enforce the tone and really be clear that this is adult. So I would just like swap that that order of, of how you introduce their, their relationship building in a reverse chronological order. But overall, I was so endeared by this. Like I thought it was so sweet. The interaction was like really sparkling with desire and also confusion. And I also love that it's not too long, right? We're like in this awkward scene. We like have our awkward moment. He's like, you coming in the shower? And she's like, I'm going to go now. <laughs> you know, awkward, like, are we friends? I don't know what we are anymore. And I just thought that was great. So then we hop over to the 10 days later scene. And um, for our samples, we actually get a good amount in the bar where they meet up with the friends. So I, I really thought this was a really wonderful double scene here. I also thought the way that we introduced our plus size heroine was quite strong. So the, the line is, I squawk in surprise, super flattering, I'm sure. He wraps his muscular arms around my waist, lifts my toes off the floor, something I haven't experienced since I was a size 10. So we get the idea that like, you know, she's in the double digit sizes or whatever. So I don't know. It just, I thought that was really subtle, right? You know, there's so many scenes where it's like, here's a character looking at themselves in the mirror or like trying to do up their pants. They don't fit. So I thought this was a really subtle way to um, to set this up. So I really adored this. I thought it was really strong and it gave me strong one to watch vibes, which I just loved. Wonderful, Carly. Cece, was there anything you wanted to add to that? I thought this was so funny and fun and just generally like a joy to read. The great, great job that the author did. Amazing. Wonderful. Okay, Cece, let's go to the last query letter for the day. Will you read that for us? Dear Cece Lira, I am seeking representation for my debut novel, Lagos. Lagos is an intimate portrait of Nigerian immigrants who must return home and reckon with the consequences of obsession, sexuality, and corruption, and the past they thought they had put behind them forever. The 60,000-word literary fiction will appeal to fans of My Sister the Serial Killer and Animal. Because you seek literary fiction about morally ambiguous protagonists, 
and love promising young woman, I think this would be a great fit for your list. 33-year-old Neka is fed up with Toronto. She has grown tired of the burden of being Black in a foreign country. She doesn't see a future in the city. Moreover, there's no place as thrilling as her home, Lagos, Nigeria. That's what she tells her husband, Kunle, when she convinces him to move back to Lagos. Shortly after they move back, Neka falls completely in love with Lagos. She's no longer hyper aware of her race and the daily microaggressions that she experienced in Toronto. She's having more fun than she's ever had all her life. Meanwhile, Kunlu is hiding a secret from her that's tearing their marriage apart. He's slowly crumbling under the weight of Lagos, where no one follows the rules and he must hide a side of himself. What they are least anticipating is Kunlu's ex-boyfriend, Lawal, showing up at their front door one Sunday afternoon, demanding Kunlu reciprocate his love. A struggle ensues when Lawal pulls a knife to Kunla's neck, leaving Lawal wounded. Neka and Kunla must hatch a plan to save Lawal's life and rescue themselves from the police. She knows that to avoid an arrest, she must tell lies about how Lawal was hurt. Just when Neka thinks her plan has kept them safe, Kunla goes missing. She suspects Lawal has kidnapped her husband. While she tries to recruit the police in solving the case, they begin to investigate the couple for attempted murder. The repercussions of an arrest are immense. They could be thrown in the worst jail on earth for defending themselves. Neka must retrieve Kunla from his abductors before the police close in on them. I'm a gay Nigerian who's been living in Toronto for 10 years. While in university, I majored in professional writing and communication. During the day, I work as a marketing manager at a Canadian bank, tinkering on digital marketing campaigns. When I'm not writing or working, I'm most likely dancing to South African house beats and lip syncing to Fela Kuti. Sincerely, Odia. Awesome, Cece. Thank you. Okay, would you like to give us your take on that? I want to begin by saying that I'm really sorry if I mispronounced any of the names in this, which I probably did. Let's face it. I did try to look this up, but it's really hard for me to read phonetical pronunciation. So I promise I tried my best. First paragraph. As a global note for all titles, I recommend either using all caps. So my sister, the serial killer in all caps or italics, like at the very least one or the other, because Without that, readability becomes really hard. As well, um, the very first paragraph starts with intimate portrait of Nigerian immigrants who must return. I was like, Nigerian immigrants, two, three, five, ten, a family, mother and son, son and daughter. Like, what's, and of course, having read further, I know it's a couple, but I think you should specify it right from the beginning. It just adds clarity. Also, I'm having doubts about the genre. I'm not entirely convinced this is literary fiction. I'll tell you why. 60,000 words is tricky, very, very tricky for any genre, but especially for literary fiction that is dual POV. It's not a lot of words inside each character's head. And I'm also assuming this is dual POV because we start with the husband's point of view and we for sure get Neka's or else the query letter wouldn't spend so much time in her in her mind. So I'm wondering, would this be more like a thriller or domestic suspense? I just, I had questions, especially because of the comps, right? Like my sister, the serial killer is really dark and funny and disturbing. It's like satire. So does this matter? the tone and type of your story because if it does like it just makes me even more excited I'm excited anyway because it seems great but watch out for comps that have such a specific tone like dark satire and if they don't match your your own something to think about and you did give me like title word comp genre comp so that was great I also would say that 
in terms of the last plot paragraph, by the time I got to there, I was like, okay, I'm definitely getting thriller vibes, right? Like the police and the hatching of the plan, just reiterating that it might just be a thriller. And this is a good thing, in my opinion. Loved the last paragraph. It was perfect. Thank you for that. Awesome, Cece. Just for our listeners and for the author, think of something like a Meg Abbott. Megan Abbott. Is it Meg Abbott? Megan Abbott. She does kind of thrillers or crime novels, but in a in a very literary way as well. So perhaps that's something to comp when you're talking about the genre or the or the tone specifically. Okay, Cece, would you like to tell us a bit of what was in those opening pages? So the story begins with Kunle sharing that he feels scared. He claims that he has not yet sunk his ship, and we're wondering, what the heck? He hasn't told you something. You is next. This story is told in hybrid second person, a la The Push by Ashley Audrain, a la the book and now TV show You. It's a Sunday in Lagos and Kunle is outside under the palm trees. Neka, his wife, is out. He thinks of texting her to bring home ice cream and pies. It's a very normal day. And that's when Lawal shows up. Kunla and Lawal go inside the house. We know through inner life that Lawal is Kunla's ex. So then Lawal asks Kunla about getting married. Like, you got married? And asks him, how did you know that Neka was the one? So then Kunla shares a story about him and Neka witnessing a mugging or some type of violent interaction in, in Toronto, back when they lived in Toronto. Kunla excuses himself. And that's when we realize, like, through inner life that he really wants Lawal to leave and he's rehearsing ways to get Lawal to leave. When Lawal calls out his name, Kunla goes back into the living room or the room where they were and Lawal is naked and, like, with come-hither looks. So that's, these are the pages. First of all, I thought that we were going to start with Neka's point of view and we're starting with Kunla's, like, based on the query letter. So I would kind of adjust that query letter to align expectations. It's not necessarily a bad thing, but I just wasn't clear that it was going to be Kunle. I loved the first paragraph. I, I loved so much about this, right? Like there's so, I kept highlighting things that were absolutely so, so great. So please know that everything that I'm pointing out here, it's just because our job is to point out stuff that can be improved. The second paragraph says, smell my anxiety. I'm wondering whether you could change that to smell my fear. Anxiety doesn't match the rest of the paragraphs. The rest of the paragraphs are too primal and visceral. Also, I would start with the line, it was a Sunday when Lawal arrived. You want to start grounding us in scene with a day, a plot event. The protagonist interiority is very rich, which is great, but it causes the reader to feel untethered, which is not great in the beginning. Avoid name-splaining. Avoid being like, good luck, or gateman. Either find subtle ways to explain who good luck is or trust that the reader will pick up on it. The big, big picture note is this. The emotional tension here needs calibration. When Lawal arrives, we see description, we see facts, we see all these things, and then we get emotion, which is an emotion that's actually quite strong, which is horror crept into me. But we have two paragraphs of description before that. We feel before we think. Feeling is unconscious. This is actually something that all writers should think about. Your, un- your protagonist's unconscious should be on the page, not just their conscious awareness, not just stuff that they're seeing, but stuff that they're not even realizing they're actually experiencing. So I wanted the emotion to come first. So it's not that you don't have the emotion, but just unfold it in a different way, especially something like horror. Horror is a visceral emotion. So you want that to be laid out very, very early on. I also wanted the dialogue between Kunle and La wall to be trimmed down. The dialogue is great. You write dialogue really, really well. But I have a theory here. 
I think there was backstory in these pages. And you've heard us say that backstory is a no-no in the first five pages. So then what you did is you added the backstory in the dialogue. Just because it's like really, really long dialogue of the mugging in Toronto. Do we need this in the first five pages? It's all what happened in the past. Keep this. I want to know about this eventually in the novel. But I want that first scene to be all about the sexual tension between Kunla and Lawal. So I think you were sneaky, which I applaud. I always applaud sneakiness. But no, no, no backstory, not even in dialogue. And yeah, and this is this is really great. I, I would have kept on reading more. I really, really enjoyed it. I was very curious. Wonderful. Cece, Collie, have you got anything to add to that? The big thing that stuck out to me were, were the big chunks of dialogue. It did feel unnatural in terms of the interaction between two people just to like let the other person speak for that long. But otherwise, I think it's a really, really strong page. Before we go to today's guest, here's a reminder about the shit no one tells you about writing virtual retreat coming up the last weekend in January. It's going to be a jam-packed literary weekend filled with experts in the field sharing heaps of knowledge and experience with you. Don't forget the annual The Shit No One Tells You About Writing Book Club and all the software discounts and prizes that are all part and parcel of that retreat. Then, as part of my fundraising efforts to send Coletta Mapai to grad school, I'm offering a new course called How to Nail Writing Backstory. The course will be on the 17th of November from 7 to 10 p.m. Eastern Time. It will be taped in case you aren't able to attend it live. Now, all proceeds from that course will go to sending Coletta to school, so you'll be supporting a very worthy cause while learning an essential element of craft at the same time. Plus, if we get 100 bookings for that, we'll do a draw for a 50-page manuscript evaluation done by CC Lira. So don't just book, get your writing group to book as well. Go to my website at biancamaray.com, go under the Courses, Retreats and Services tabs to book for the retreat or for the How to Nail Writing Backstory course. Then finally, if you're a Kofi supporter of the podcast, you'll be getting exclusive additional content on our Kofi page, including Carly and Cece's written critiques from each episode of Books with Hooks. Now, if you sign up for that today, you'll have access to that content from next week. Please make sure you don't check out as a guest or else you won't see that content. You must register an account. Right now, let's go to today's guest. We just registered my youngest kid for kindergarten. I cannot believe it. One of the tricky things about my kids being in French immersion school and not having French as a language myself is I'm honestly worried about how I'm going to assist with homework as they get bigger. They're young now, but I see it coming. We are honestly so lucky, though, to live in a city that's bilingual and we have bilingual friends and francophone friends. So I know it's going to be easy for our kids to pick it up. Me, on the other hand, I am worried about me. I grew up somewhere where French class was not taken seriously, and now I have to make up the difference. And that's where Rosetta Stone comes in. As the most trusted language learning program available on desktop or as an app, it really immerses you in the language you want to learn. Rosetta Stone teaches through immersion, which is a proven way to learn a language. Instead of memorizing and drilling vocabulary words, you learn by matching audio from native speakers to visuals, reading stories, participating in dialogues, and other practical language skills to fast track your ability to communicate fluently. There are no English translations in the product. You're honestly getting trained to listen, speak, read, write, and think in your new language, which is what everybody wants. 
Rosetta Stone users especially love the speech recognition feature. As you practice speaking, Rosetta Stone uses advanced voice recognition technology to match your audio, the audio from native speakers, and then give you feedback on how well you're pronunciating the words so you can really hone those pronunciations. It offers 25 languages from Spanish, French, Italian, German, Chinese, Korean, Japanese, even Dutch, Arabic, and Polish. This is the best language program because they have been an expert in the language learning field for 30 years and used by millions. Thousands of companies and government organizations use Rosetta Stone to support language training online. Of all the apps, Rosetta Stone uses the best speech recognition technology, so it compares your sound waves to those of a native speaker for better feedback to improve. They have a patented speech recognition engine called True Accent, which is built into the program. As you practice speaking, you'll get feedback on how well you're pronouncing words. The other language learning apps use speech recognition to detect what you said, but Rosetta Stone tells you how well you said it compared to native speakers. It's like having a personal trainer for your accent. Think about the cost of a one month language course. Think about the cost of one hour private tutoring sessions. With Rosetta Stone, you enjoy lifetime membership and accessibility on desktop or app. We have a special offer for you guys. That's 50% off. That's a lifetime access to 25 language courses on Rosetta Stone for 50% off. This is a steal. Do not put off learning that language. There is no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, the shit no one tells you what writing listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. That We want you guys to go visit rosettastone.com slash today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com slash today, today. Did you know that 70% of all books are sold online via e-commerce? If you're an author wondering how you can get some of that market share, this is for you. Hi, I'm your co-host Carly Waters, and I'm here to tell you how writers can work on their author brand to build an audience and convert those followers into book buyers. Do you ever wonder why so many authors publish their books and later say they didn't sell as many copies as they wanted? It happens over and over, and it's all over social media. Authors really think it's a them problem, but not always. They really just weren't shown the way. And I don't want you guys to launch a book and show up at book events and have two people in the chairs. I have helped clients launch books to the bestseller list for over 15 years. I have now built a six-module, 10-hour course with all my knowledge, and that will give you the craft and book business information that you won't find anywhere else. And there's an app. Over 100 of you have already joined my new course. And writer Siobhan Moore said, I'm halfway through the course and grieving that I didn't have this information sooner. There's really nowhere else to find it. Worth every penny. Thank you, Siobhan. If you want all that info and everything that will change the course of your writing career, go to carlywaters.com slash course to learn more and use discount code POD15 for the month of April at checkout. That's POD, P-O-D 15 at checkout over at carlywaters.com slash course. Today's guest is Maggie Knox, which is a pen name for writing duo Karma Brown and Marissa Stapley. Brown is an award-winning journalist and best-selling author of six books, including Recipe for a Perfect Wife, and her writing has appeared in publications such as Self, Red Book, Today's Parent, and Chatelaine. She lives just outside Toronto with her family. Stapley is the best-selling author of four novels, including the recently released Lucky. Her journalism has appeared in newspapers and magazines across North America. She lives in Toronto with her family. We've had both of them on the podcast separately, and now we have them together as writing duo Maggie Knox. 
Karma and Marissa, welcome back to the show. You've both been on separately, and now I get to chat to you together. Thanks for having us. We're happy to be here. Yeah, congratulations on the holiday swap. Such a fun, fun read, and I'm sure it's going to do phenomenally well over the holidays. For our listeners, can you tell us the inspiration for this, the impetus for this? Because you are both best-selling authors in your own right. I know that you're both very good friends. How did the writing partnership of Maggie Knox come about? Well, I think Carmen and I, I mean, we talk about now, we, it, the beginnings are somewhat murky for us because we were sort of, we, it was a lark. Like we were maybe having a day where we were chatting back and forth by text and I didn't feel like doing what I was doing with my book and she didn't want to be doing what she was doing. I think you were publicizing. I was about to start promotion, which is not my favorite part. So yes, Marissa was happy to take it over. We talked about maybe swapping. Yeah. Swapping bodies. And then I was like, oh, you know, and then we, were, I was like, I'd rather be writing anything. And I think maybe we were talking about just writing something fun because, you know, when you're, you're thinking about writing a book and it seems like it's going to be so fun and then you're kind of in the middle of it and suddenly you lost your way or totally screwed up the idea or you're trying to do edits. And so we were both kind of joking about what would be so fun to write. And Karma said, you know what would be fun? The holiday romance. And then we just started going back and forth. And I think because Karma and I, we are pretty intense in our work ethic. So the next thing we knew, we were planning out this book and we were pitching it to our agents and they were super excited. And yeah, it just sort of, and it was just before Christmas too, I think Marissa, it was around November. And so we were talking about, you know, what might be fun to write that's so different from anything we've done. We've never written romance, despite the fact that we have romantic elements in some of our novels, but, you know, it was really just something completely different that seemed like it might be a fun idea to try. And then here we are. It just snowballed. And how did you go about brainstorming? Because this was also in the middle of COVID, wasn't it? I don't think the two of you were going to each other's houses. Were you just having Zooms to brainstorm the ideas? How did you facilitate that process? Well, we we chat every day via a, a group text that just keeps us all going. And I think we did a lot of it through that. And we couldn't gather, we couldn't get together, but we could talk and we could talk on the phone and we did do some of that, but we were pretty aligned. I mean, we had a clear idea of what we wanted the book to be. We wanted it to be sweet and romantic and, you know, feel a lot like the those holiday movies you watch at Christmas time. I do anyway, as I'm wrapping gifts, you know, the very predictable, but fun and sweet ones that leave you with your heart feeling full by the end. And it, I, it just grew from there. I mean, I, it was quite, yeah, it just grew from that place. And then we had the idea and yeah. I think we were texting a lot and then finally we moved it to email so that we could keep track of it. And then we also, we sold, like we wrote half of it and we, and we outlined the rest of it. So we had the outline done very early, I think, too. Mm -hmm. And and do you both do that in your own work, that kind of outlining thing? Is it that this was something you both independently did so you were able to easily do together? Or was it like one of you is an outliner and the other one was like, oh, shit, I'm going to have to learn how to outline. How did that work? <laughs> yeah, Who wants much. to take this one? That's basically it. <laughs> <laughs> so Karma's more of an outliner and I'm more of a, I mean, I do outline, but I do it retroactively. So I do a messy first draft that Karma can't even talk about. It gives her hives to think about my first draft. So I would go through a messy first draft and then outline 
after, but you can't do that when you're working with someone else. So we really did have to rigorously outline. I, mean, I don't think I needed to learn how to outline. It's just a different way of working. And I think that there were certain areas where maybe karma was like, okay, we'll just figure out as we go along a little bit, but you can't really do that when you're working with another person. And luckily the format is simple enough that this is a holiday rom-com. It's not rocket science. Like they have to be happy at the end and we just needed to yeah. get them there. So. Yeah. And we did. Uh, sorry. Yep. sorry. No, I was just going to talk about the, you know, I like Marissa and I definitely have some differences in how we plot, how we outline, how we write, but, and I don't think either of us are on the extreme ends of, of those places either. I mean, I outline for a while, but then I, I can't do it anymore. And I just start writing. So we're, we're not super far apart, but it was something that we had to sort out how to do that. And also that it was, you know, Maggie Knox's book and not Karma's book or not Marissa's book and finding that balance about having two creative minds coming together to create this story, which does have predictability, but we wanted it to feel fresh and different and, you know, have some nice feminist themes in there. And so, yeah, it was, I mean, it's a process, I think. It was a process for us to do that. So it's, it's interesting how you forged your own kind of dynamic because I have someone in my writing group who outlines rigorously. She'll send us kind of pages and pages of act one, the inciting incident, and then the key event. And I look at this and I get chest pain. Like it actually gives me chest pain because I feel so constrained by something like mm -hmm. that. Like to me, it takes out all the creativity out of it. You know, it feels, but, but for her, that's the way she writes. And when you said about your group chat, I don't know if you guys saw the Twitter thing about who's the bad artist friend. Unfortunately, I did. Our writing group now, we, we terrified that our writing group chats are going to get subpoenaed. So <laughs> we haven't spoken to each other in like three days because we're all terrified about it. Oh, Marissa, if you want to go down a rabbit hole. Go Don't, Marissa, it. save yourself. But I know you probably will because it, <laughs> it is entertaining, but it is you time you won't get back. Yeah. <laughs> um, in, in terms of the split of the work, because here's the genius thing about writing duos is surely it halves the work and it yeah. takes half the amount of yeah. time to write the book, obviously, if you are super productive and you work together well. So mm -hmm. did you alternate chapters? Did one of you tackle one chapter, the other one tackle the other? How did you do that split of, of work? Yeah, we alternated chapters. Like we talked about it at first and I actually thought maybe we would each take a twin and Karma very wisely said it's part of, like like you said, half the work half is one of the benefits of working with another author. But one of the other benefits is not being stuck with your character for too long and thinking, oh, I've backed, you know, this person into a corner. How am I going to get out of this? So we alternated chapters. So we each, we just split it up and then that's how it worked. So I think when we sent it out, editors noticed too, that it was very seamless. We're not doing that with our next book because it's a male and female character. It's a hating game type book. So we decided we should each take a character because the voices really needed to be quite markedly different. But in this case, it needed to be seamless. So we just split it up and we'd go from LA to Starlight Peak and Hill uh, yeah. in. And it just, it also gave us that chance to, as Marissa said, like not be, you know, not get that feeling like you're really dragging with the storyline or with that particular character, but also that we got to know the twins together. And we also got to be a part of developing who they were through edits. And, you know, the editors didn't know who had written which chapter, which was really nice to see. I still don't know if actually when we went to do our final edits, Marissa and I almost couldn't remember. There were points where I 
like, did you do chapter 21 or did I do chapter 21? And we almost couldn't remember because it just had flowed nicely together by that point. I was I was trying to figure it out and I couldn't. And that <laughs> in itself is really interesting because I can't write without using a ton of M dashes, long sentences, lots of commas, etc. And, you know, I feel that that's part of a writer's style. It's a part of their voice. This is why when J.K. Rowling wrote under Robert Galbraith, there was a software package that was able to determine that she was the writer of it based on the sentence structure and the kind of words she chose. So that feels so intrinsic to to each writer. And yet the two of you managed to meld your styles together so brilliantly. Thank you. We're not that different. I I think, you know, that's the interesting thing. We have a lot of differences in how we approach writing. And, you know, Marissa is a fan of the TKs, the two thumbs for certain places. And I feel very anxious about them. You know, we have little differences like that. But I do think a lot of our style is similar. I think that our our way of approaching a character and the dialogue, I really do think that we have a lot of similarities in our style, which we may not have noticed before, but it turned out to be a a good thing. My husband read it and he guessed and he made a little game for himself and he, but he would, he knows he would guess like if there was a restaurant scene and you knew every single thing they ate. He's like, that's got to be you because you're obsessed about like not only what I eat, but like what everyone, eat. like if Karma was like going out for dinner with Adam tonight, I'd be like, did you figure out what you're eating? And like, what are you having? Like it's just, and then he would be like, that's Karma because you would never know that a recipe wouldn't work if you took out a key ingredient. And it was just fun for him. So. <laughs> and, well, it shows you how well he knows your writing. So that's good. Why did you decide to go with Maggie Knox as opposed to just putting both of your names on the book because I've been looking at a lot of writing duos and some of them like Liv Constantine just kind of picked this name and others have both of their names out there on the book how did you reach this decision we wanted to use our initials right we wanted to use our initials like MK or KM I think we went through a few I think we had one and then we were told by our publisher that there was another one that was too similar I think we we chose a pen name because it's a sort of a a contractual thing where we well we have our own books that are quite different and we are currently under contract for books so it's not like we're shifting from our our standalone personal books to Maggie Knox and writing this going forward so there was also that practicality to honor contracts and and other things to make sure that that was quite you know quite split but yeah we had to go through we did a lot of brain we might have done more brainstorming on our name than we did on the actual plot for the book to be honest it took a long time mm-hmm. I chose yeah. Maggie because I had a writer grand grand granny named Maggie so I, I kind of guess I always knew it would be that but then I think it was harder with the last name and we wanted it short yeah we wanted it short because we, we were hoping it could all fit on one line yeah it was, <laughs> got there eventually and and you talking about the next book already so I mean when you sold this book I think I think more than one publisher wanted this book wasn't this book done on auction or something mm-hmm. can you tell us a bit about that tell listeners how that kind of thing works yeah, that was really exciting. And we laughed too, because we we try really hard with all our books. And, you know, an auction is kind of a magical thing. 
we were like, wow, we wrote this fun holiday rom-com and and this is what gets the auction. But yeah, I think there were four publishers who were interested. And then we decided we had this other idea we had talked about briefly. And I think that day I said to Karma, let's get a paragraph together on this other idea and see if we can throw that in. And and we did that. So we've just, we just finished that one last week. Yeah. All, all I want for Christmas. It's like Nashville meets the hating game. Oh my word. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Love, love that. So so you then sold it on auction as a two book deal. Is that mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And we sold it on a on what 150 pages, Marissa. Half so we also outline, yeah. you know, it was it was an interesting time because it was like right in the middle of the first lockdown of COVID. And we knew that people wanted some happy books and they wanted rom-coms and they wanted to sit and read something that felt comforting and warm and happy. And so, you know, we pushed a bit to get that, you know, to put it out there with a half a book written and a good outline because it felt like there, the timing was right to do that. And it was, I mean, it worked out. So, Otherwise, so that was, sorry, was that for the holiday swap or that was that for your second one? You, you sold the holiday swap on 150 pages. Mm-hmm. Yes, but we also sold the second one too right as part of that deal on a it was a paragraph like it was just like yeah. <laughs> national <laughs> insane game <laughs> and yeah. they were like yes at Christmas wait Christmas <laughs> that's yeah. amazing because I haven't heard of publishers doing that you know it's always like the book has to be finished and obviously it's the fact that both of you have got such substantial writing chops so they knew if the first 150 pages were good the rest was going to be good but I haven't heard of I think the last time I heard about an auction on just not a full manuscript goes back to I think Marion Keys initially her representation so that's absolutely amazing it, it stops you wasting time because that's the worst part of being a writer for me is the year you spend on the novel that doesn't get sold right we had that conversation we did we we really wanted to work on the book and we had done half and we did have a very detailed second half outline I mean pages and pages and pages so it was very clear what was happening who was doing what and what it would look like in the end and we stayed pretty close to that I think actually when we Mm -hmm. finished we also had our own books and other things that were coming up and so we didn't want to you know it was hard to wait like like you said it was hard to think of spending all that time and then maybe missing this window so we just went for it and it worked yeah. And yes, we rigorously outlined that second half. We like did. We knew. But I think it worked in our favor because the at the time, I don't know, like you said, it is a bit unprecedented. The people, the editors were all locked in their New York apartments. They wanted fun, holiday, delicious rom-com, but also it they, they it was short and sweet, right? Like they knew it was going to happen and, and they got to the end of it quickly and, and it worked. I don't and know. I had stalked Twitter. I mm-hmm. had been stalking Twitter to see like to get the temperature. Mm-hmm. So I yeah. knew that that's what the editors were saying. I mean, that's what they were asking for. They were having these conversations about that on Twitter. And so it was like, yeah, yeah but it's so difficult to be reactive to what the market wants, right? Because mm-hmm. you hear, you look at editors' manuscript wish lists and they want stories about, let's say, werewolves. And But by the time you finish the damn story about the damn werewolf, they've moved on and now they want stories about something else. Being able to work together on it halves the amount of time that it takes to write the book. Was the second book easier to write together now that you guys have got into your groove or every book has got its own challenges and every book's difficult? Was it that experience again? I think the second book in some ways was harder, right? We we unfortunately had to write quite separately with the second book because of timing. I mean, we just, again, we have our own schedules and and our own books and a contract and, and stuff with our families. And it was just, 
we were on deadline. And so we weren't able to write simultaneously. And I think that is what made it trickiest for both of us because Mm -hmm. we were kind of writing in silos and then coming together, you know, we'd sort of come back together and and regroup and revisit. I don't think it affects the product in the end, but I think for Marissa and I, it was more challenging because we couldn't, you know, sort of do that seamless, like, okay, here's my chapter. Here's your chapter. Mm -hmm. Here's my chapter thing. We weren't in lock. Like we wrote so much of the holiday swap while we were really just stuck at home. Right. And I know a lot of people couldn't write, but I don't think we found that. And I think this book helped us during the lockdown because we did it and we were not alone. Like it, it, but then the world had opened up and, and things were different. So yeah. And deadlines. And I mean, it just got complicated really. Mm -hmm. Right. Well, the circumstances change. And so you've got to kind of pivot around. That I have to ask, which one of you wrote the male's voice for the second book? Should we say? I don't know. Um, if we should are we say. allowed to? Oh no, maybe we don't say. I'll tell you. you tell me, guess. and I'll edit it out. You yeah. should guess. Guess when you read it. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Damn it! I've got to wait forever. <laughs> So for our listeners, do you have advice for those who are considering writing partnerships? I mean, do you have to be like, you guys are really good friends. Do you have to be super close with the person that you're writing with? Do you think it's possible to do it with someone you don't know very well? If someone wants a writing partner, what other qualities do you think they should look for in their person? I mean, I actually had a project, a proposal that I did with another author, and I didn't know her as well at all. Like, we'd never even met. We just talked on Zoom. And it still worked just as well. I mean, I, we didn't, it didn't end up taking off. So I don't know what it would have been like to go through the whole book. But I think you, it, the main thing, Karma, do you agree is you have to have someone who has the same work ethic as you do. Yes. I think that's what we, and we know that we have that. So, so as long as you know that the person is going to be working as hard as you, then I think that's, that's it. And then I don't know. I mean, I think there are all different types of co-authors and some of them are best friends and some of them aren't, but I really just think you have to be equally disciplined. At least we probably feel that way. Or maybe yeah. equally undisciplined, like equally, <laughs> right? Like you have to, I think your work ethic does have to be in line for sure. And then also just, you do have to be able to be in a place with the, that other person where you, you, I mean, we had many conversations where we were like, okay, wait, you know, am I sticking too much on this point? Like, this is our book. We're doing this together. We don't own this the way we do. You know, you don't have full control over the creativity of it or even over the schedule of it when you're writing with another person. And so there is some flexibility and learning about how to, to work in that way because, you know, writers are such solitary creatures. We spend so much time alone and it's all has to come out of us. So that was one of the best things was not having to write the whole book, especially because I hate drafting. So I was just like, oh, thank goodness, Marissa is going to write half this book and I don't have to do that half. But then it's also, you know, that balance of, okay, but I also don't write that other half of the book. And I have to be respectful and appreciative. And it is, uh, yeah, so that's not really advice. That's just. You have to think about it all. Yeah. I think it has to be someone you like too, because, and someone who's writing you like, it can't be, you can't think you're a better writer than, you know what I mean? It has to be someone you consider your equal too, right? Like, yeah, for sure. Did did you set like grand rules before you began? Were you like, okay, these are the things we're agreeing with before we begin? Or was it a, let's just dive in and if shit happens, we're going to deal with it along the way. I think think that was more us. (laughs) 
Karma tried to tell me I wasn't allowed to use TKs in the last book, but I don't know. I don't think I did. But But you didn't. You didn't. And I was so proud of you. I don't know if I've told you that, but there were very few TKs, although we were under a different kind of time pressure on the second book, to be honest. It just was a different place. So we didn't have quite the same luxury of sitting back and throwing some TKs in, or in my case, going and researching the like heck out of something so that I can put one sentence in. Yeah, Yeah. I think it was probably the latter though. We, we were just, we just jumped in and then we had a contract and then we were on a deadline and we just really figured a lot of it out as we went. Wonderful. I think that's uh, Tina Fey's advice. If someone asks you to do something, just say yes. And then you can figure out afterwards how the hell to do it. But I loved what you said, Marissa, about the work ethic. Because for me, I would hate to have to be cracking the whip at somebody the whole time and being like, you were supposed to have pages by today and there are no pages. Where are your pages? Why are you, why am I seeing you on Instagram at a restaurant (laughs) when you should be home writing your pages? It's it's a group project. It's like the group projects in school, right? And hated group projects in school. It is hard. And if you were working with someone or even in an anthology, maybe where there's more than one co-author, like more than one author, if you are the person who's always very diligent about getting your work done, and then you're working with someone who prefers group projects, sort of like, well, somebody else will do it for me, that will not work. It's very similar. Mm -hmm. It has that feel for sure. Yeah. Well, Karma and Marissa, thank you so much for taking the time out. I know you're very busy with all the publicity. For our listeners, get the holiday swap and get it early from your independent bookstore. Remember, there's going to be book shortages closer to Christmas and booksellers are going to be stressed out of their minds. And this is the kind of book you want to be reading ahead of Christmas anyway. So get that early. Awesome. Thank you. you. And that's it for today's episode. I hope you'll join us for next week's show. In the meantime, keep at it. Remember, it just takes one yes. Calling all memoirists. I'm so excited to let you know that I've put together an incredible all about memoir lineup for Saturday the 11th of May from 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. Eastern Time in which six amazing speakers guide you through everything you need to know to write a memoir that will sell. You'll get opportunities to ask questions of best-selling memoirists while also standing a chance to have your query letter live critiqued during the webinar. To see the awesome lineup and to register, go to biancamaray.com. There's an early bird promotion for the first 50 delegates who sign up. Come and join us and get your memoir groove on. Calling all memoirists. I'm so excited to let you know that I've put together an incredible all about memoir lineup for Saturday the 11th of May from 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. Eastern Time in which six amazing speakers guide you through everything you need to know to write a memoir that will sell. You'll get opportunities to ask questions of best-selling memoirists while also standing a chance to have your query letter live critiqued during the webinar. To see the awesome lineup and to register, go to biancamaray.com. There's an early bird promotion for the first 50 delegates who sign up. Come and join us and get your memoir groove on.